Well, I love Christmas time from the time I can remember when I was a kid. Uh, Christmas was always a uh, really a big deal in our family. Um, my mom made sure of that. My mom would always decorate. She decorated, oh, it seemed like every single room in our house. And uh, my poor dad, he was the most worn out person at Christmas time, I think, than anybody else because she had all these projects and wreaths that had to be hung. And, and uh, all. I mean, she just went full speed in regards to Christmas. In fact, every year we would have this... Um, a little village. Do you all have Christmas villages? Any of you got Christmas villages? You need to just throw them away because it is, it is creating disharmony that you do not even see beneath the surface of your family. But, but my mom, she would want this village done. I mean, she, had a, she had a backdrop. It was like a, a, a cloth tarp that she, had, uh, that she had painted and she poked individual holes to put blinking Christmas lights in to make the stars and the starry night. That's how detailed this stuff was. And, uh, of course, my dad was the one that had to put it all together. And there would be nights it would be like December 22nd. And, Ken, are you going to put the scene together? Yeah, I'm going to put it together. And, you know, get put together like the night. But it was really the night before Christmas kind of a thing in our family. And so I love Christmas time because it's, it's a lot of those kinds of things. It's decorations. It's family. It's traditions. You probably have traditions in your family. It's gifts and uh, re-gifts and exchanges and all those things. I mean, I, I just, I love Christmas season. I know you're probably the same way. But one of the things that we sometimes miss is that Christmas is a time really to learn so much about what trust really is. And it's because of the way the Bible speaks of the details of the Christmas story. Matthew and Luke, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and Luke both give us probably the most information we have about that first Christmas when Jesus came. And today what I want us to do is to begin a brand new series. It's just going to be three Sundays long called Christmas Trust. And what I want us to do, this is going to be really neat. I, I was really excited putting together this first message because I um, just was able to see some things maybe in a, in a different light because we don't always think through the details of, of Scripture sometimes unless we're preparing to teach it. And uh, for me, it was just really, really interesting this week as I was preparing this message because I was able to see from a perspective of trust what the Christmas story teaches us. And so this morning, we're going to begin with a message, Christmas Trust. We're going to look at the person of Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to see an example of trust, just an amazing example of what trust looks like. Not trust just from a first century perspective, but trust in a way that we can apply to our lives even as we leave this morning. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Next Sunday, I want you to plan to be back because we're going to look at the reward of trust. Reward uh, is definitely a part of trust. God ensures that when we trust Him, then, then there is a reward that comes with it, uh, and, and there is a way, there is a kickback, so to speak, that, that goes with trusting God, and whenever we do that, and we put our trust in Him, and we follow Him, uh, then there, there are certain rewards that come, so we're going to see that next Sunday. And then the last Sunday, the Sunday before Christmas, uh, we're going to look at the invitation to trust, and, and here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to really make a priority. I know some of you travel through this season. If you're in town, really make it a priority to be here over these next Sunday mornings. Hopefully, you are every Sunday morning, but, but these next Sunday mornings... And I want you to consider who you can bring with you and to invite. Number one, because there is no more baseline ingredient to our walk with God than trust. That's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, but then also, number two, people are so responsive to invitations to just go to church at Christmas season as unlike any other time during the year except maybe Easter. And so there, you've got a lot of friends and coworkers and family members that, uh, you know, they'll just sort of give you the, the, you know, the Heisman stiff arm when you try to invite them to church. But this season, they'll actually come, a lot of them, if you just invite them to come with you. So plan to be here these next three Sundays. Plan to, to invite somebody with you. And uh, let's just see what God does. I think God's going to teach us a lot of things about what trust truly 
truly is. Trust is important for a number of reasons. I would say probably the most is because it is the glue to any relationship. If you do not have your trust, if you don't have the element of trust in a relationship, there's a good chance that you don't have much of a relationship or you will not have that relationship for much longer. Because when trust is not present, it doesn't matter if it's a marriage or family or a friendship, if there is not trust that is present there, then that relationship is going to suffer because trust is the glue that holds relationships together. When you think about within the context of a marriage, if there is unfaithfulness, if there is infidelity, that strikes at the core of trust, and it takes a long time to rebuild that trust. In some cases, it changes the nature even of that relationship for, for, forever and for the rest of its days. Now, many can come through it, and they're stronger because of it, and their marriage relationship is more close because of it, but others can't even get over it. They can't get past it. Why? Because trust is that important. For those of you who have children, you don't trust your kids, right, to a babysitter, hopefully, that's just the cheapest on the block, right? You trust them to someone you can trust. If they're the cheapest on the block, that's a good thing too, don't get me wrong. But you trust your kids to people that are trustworthy, right, because your kids are valuable to you. And so you're not going to place them in the care of someone that you can't even trust, all right, you don't know what they're doing behind closed doors. You don't know, you know what, what they're going to bring into the house when you leave to go out to dinner with your spouse or when you go out with your friends. You trust your kids to those who are trustworthy right? because trust is that important. It, it is that, that fundamental to life. It, if you have money and you entrust it to someone, you're not going to choose an advisor right, who can't count. <laughs> you're not going to choose an advisor who doesn't know how to handle money. Why? Because your money is important. You work hard for that. You're, you're going to place it in the care of a manager or an advisor. If you have such a, th- such a person, you're going to place it in the care of one who, who's trustworthy because trust is that important. You don't share your deepest uh, secrets of your life, your deepest struggles or your deepest fears with someone that's going to run out and share it with everybody at work the next day. You share those kinds of things with someone that you can trust because trust is that important. Here's a question. What if our closeness to God, what if our closeness to Him was determined more by our trust in him than anything else what if trust was more important than obedience what if trust was the fundamental element not only for a person coming into a relationship with christ but what if trust was the most fundamental element of our closeness to god after we know christ what if what if we were to go so far as to say that trust or lack of it is the primary thing that determines whether we walk with him or whether we abandon him, whether we obey him, whether we disobey him, whether we acknowledge him for who he is or whether we place ourselves in the center of our lives. What if trust was that important? Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. And I want to give you a principle to hang on to before we begin to dig into the passage of Scripture. We'll, we'll walk through this passage slowly, but I want to give you a principle to hold on to, and it's going to be really everything that we're going to build around as we move through Matthew chapter 1. And the principle is this, that trust in God, trust in God, precedes obedience to God. That whenever we think about obeying God, whenever we think about following Him, whenever we think about Him being in the center of everything we are and everything revolves around Him, before we ever get to that point to where we obey Him, trust 
must be found. Because it's trust in God that precedes, it comes before our obedience to Him. And I think it would be accurate to say that the reverse is also true, in that where we do not trust Him, we do not obey Him. Where we do not trust Him, we do not follow Him. And where I choose to disobey in my relationship with God, where I choose to to engage in something I know God doesn't want for me, I can find at that very place of disobedience a, a, a failure to trust Him for who He is. And trust is that important. And so what we're going to see here in Matthew 18, it's going to be an example. That's what we're looking at today. An example of trust is that trust in God always comes before our obedience to Him. And where we do not trust Him, there is a very strong likelihood that we're not going to obey Him or follow Him in that place. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is an interesting book. It was written by the person who bears its name, Matthew. He was a tax collector in Jesus' day. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find him mentioned in more places than just the book of Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. He was ostracized by his own people. He was seen as a traitor. Uh, The people of of Jewish heritage absolutely despised tax collectors, and that's what Matthew was. He was a tax collector until Jesus met him, and when he met Jesus and he found forgiveness and he found hope and he found grace and he found a relationship with God, Matthew's life was transformed to the point to where he ultimately would write this book now that you hold in front of you that bears his name, one of the Gospels. It It is the very first book in the entire New Testament, the book of Matthew. Now, when Matthew wrote this book, the Gospel of Matthew, he wrote it from a Jewish perspective because that's what he was. He was a Jew by heritage. And if you read through it, what you'll find is there are a lot of references in Matthew to the Old Testament. And the reason for that is because Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, right? He knew Jews were going to be reading this Gospel, and he wrote it as a, as a, as a book that was aimed specifically at Jews to help them to understand that Jesus, indeed, is the Messiah that they'd heard of for centuries. And so you'll see a lot of references to the Old Testament. You'll see a lot of references to, to Jesus as king because the Jews were waiting for their king to come. And when we read, whenever we read in the very first chapter, what we find is that Matthew starts with a genealogy. I mean, he starts with kind of the family tree, right? Ancestry.com, first century style. He goes back and he traces the genealogy from an earthly perspective of Jesus, his Jewish heritage. So that the Jews who would read his book would understand, okay, this is who Jesus is. He's tied in with the Jewish people. And he wrote it for that purpose. Well, when we get to verse 18, Matthew begins to chronicle for us the, uh, the, pa- the, the, the picture of Jesus' arrival on earth. Now, it's not the beginning of Jesus. If you, if you ever hear someone say, well, yeah, book of Matthew talks about the beginning of Jesus. No, it's not the beginning of Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus has no beginning and he has no end. Uh, he, he is God. He is eternal. What Matthew helps us to understand, as does Luke, is the entrance of Jesus as we know it into this world as a person. And Matthew chapter 1 is where he does that, and he does it in amazing fashion. And as he does, as we'll see here, starting in verse 18, he's going to help us to understand the person of Mary, the person of Joseph, and some of the -the behind-the-scenes elements to the coming of Christ. And wrapped up in all of that, we see a perfect example of what trust looks like when it's demonstrated in a person's life. Trust in God always precedes obedience to God. You've got Matthew chapter 1 in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have it on the overhead. And so why don't you just read with me? Let's begin in verse 18, and we're going to read down through verse 25. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And there's some, there's some key phrases there. One is the, 
the word betrothed. We see introduced here into this uh, true story, we see Mary and Joseph. Now, if uh, scholars are accurate, and we have no reason to believe they're not, but if scholars are accurate as they've studied Hebrew history, uh, typically what we would find here is that Mary would have been a young teenage girl. I mean, it was customary in the first century Hebrew culture for the girls to get married very young. Uh, if you're 14 or 15, I'd plan to put it off a little bit later. But in their culture, 14, 15 was not uncommon for a girl to become, uh, to be, to, to become married. And so Mary was more than likely very, very young. Joseph, we have no idea how old for either of them, but we would assume would have been a little bit older. Uh, and the Bible says that they had been betrothed here in chapter 1. You don't use that word very often. How many of you have ever got a betrothal announcement in the mail, right? Probably not a whole lot of those, right? You get engagement announcements. That's kind of what we call it today. Well, when you think about being betrothed in the first century, uh, it's real similar to being, engaged, to being engaged today, a little bit different. Uh, in the first century Jewish culture, typically the parents would choose who it was that you would marry. Um, <clears throat> how many of you are really glad your mom and dad didn't pick that for you, right? Uh, yeah, uh, hands up that, that we could have had an invitation there, and it would have been the greatest move of God in, in, in like this whole year. Uh, but that's the way they did it in the first century. Typically, the parents would arrange the marriage. We know ultimately God was putting all this together. Um, but more than likely, that's probably what happened here. Mary and Joseph, they, it was somewhat of an arranged marriage, we would assume, based on the culture. And, uh, and they were in this place, this period called betrothal. Now, in, in a betrothal in the first century, you were pledged to be married. Uh, it, was, it would not be finalized until the wedding ceremony, the marriage ceremony, that sometimes could be up to a year later. And so it wasn't finalized until the ceremony would take place. The betrothal was somewhat of a kind of a proving period. It's kind of like the engagement period today. Uh, today, in a great engagement period, uh, it, it's, it's kind of like the trial run, but you can call it off whenever. Well, in the first century, if you were betrothed, this was so binding that it would require divorce. Even though you were not allowed any sexual intimacy until the marriage ceremony would come, even though the marriage was not consummated until the marriage ceremony would happen, the betrothal was so binding, so binding that it was considered a legal marriage. You would have to go through a ste the steps of divorce to see it end. Today, it's different. You get mad, say some angry words, rip the ring off, throw it in the ocean. Hey, engagement's off. You're calling all your friends. Don't come to the wedding. It ain't happening. You know? In the first century, mm -mm, it was not that easy. It, it, betrothal was that binding. And so here's what we find. We find Mary and Joseph, they are betrothed, right? They are pledged to be married. This is a binding arrangement. It would require divorce at this place for them to be separated legally. They are not allowed any sexual intimacy at all, according to the Hebrew customs and according to ultimately God's word. And that's why it says before they came together, that's a reference to the fact that they had not been united physically at all during this time. And it's during this time, it says, she's found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Well, Joseph is just like any other, any other guy. Look at verse 19. It says, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. You see, we have this picture that Joseph somehow, and a lot of others in the Bible, were these superhuman uh, Christian saints, right? We have this picture. You know, there's some religious stuff today that kind of helps propagate that fallacy. But we have this picture that they're people unlike us. Joseph was just like you. And uh, here's the thing. If, <clears throat> when Joseph... If, if he were to push forward with this thing, he's going to have all of his buddies and all of his friends and everybody that he knows saying, man, what are you thinking? 
So, so she told you, let me get this right, Joseph. Let me get this right. So she told you that she's carrying a child, but it's from the Holy Spirit, right? How well would that go over today with your buddies, right? Ladies, how, or guys, how well would that have gone for you if that was the story that you heard, right? Uh, probably not real well. Jo- Joseph doesn't, he didn't have the end of the story, right? He couldn't like flip ahead real quick to Matthew or to, to Luke and say, oh, okay, this is all going to turn out just fine. Yeah, he didn't have this. He said, oh, I saw, the, I saw this on TV. They had a five-part special, you know. Yeah, it's all going to be okay, Mary. Come on, it's all going to be. Now, he didn't have all that. And Joseph was just like anybody else. And the decision was, when he found out that Mary, more than likely this young teenage girl, who in a legally binding betrothal relationship with him has, has, uh, is now pregnant, what he decided was what any other guy would have said. He said, you know what? I'm not going to make a stink of this. I'm not going to drag her through the mud. But I'm done. I'm done. That's what's going on between the ears. I'm done. Verse 20. It says, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now understand this angel of the Lord would have been representative of God. This would have been that powerful of a message. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son... You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, this this passage and that that, that's highlighted yellow is really the hinge for Joseph. Because in the midst of all of this turmoil, in the midst of everything that's swirling, in the midst of of probably some some of his buddies speaking in one ear and then him questioning, what is going on? Mary has never been this way before. All the confusion, all the doubt, everything that's going on, he gets this visit from a messenger from God who says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Do not be afraid, he says. And when you look at this, we have to understand that the, the weight, the significance of this particular verse. Because Joseph knew what people would say about him if he were to take her as his wife. He knew the conversations that would be taking place. He knew what his buddies would say at the water cooler in the carpenter shop on Monday morning. He knew what they would be saying whenever they would begin to grow as a family and whenever his, his other kids would grow up and they would begin to go to, you know, to, to all their activities and they'd have their... He knew he'd be hearing all the time uh, all of the controversy of what took place. Oh, that's Mary and Joseph, you know. You know. He knew the looks and he knew the sneers that would come. He knew the, the, the people that would look down their noses at him. He knew all of that would happen. That if he took her as his wife, he knew what would come. You say, Brooks, you're reading too much into this. Let's just fast forward 30 years, okay, into Jesus' ministry. Just for a moment. Fast forward 30 years to the book of John, chapter 8. And what we find is in the midst of Jesus' ministry, this comes up again 30 years later. Look at what it says. Read along with me. So, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who'd believed him, if you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Let's, let's jump up to verse 37. He says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Jesus is speaking here to his enemies. He says, because my word has no place in you. 
I speak the things which I've seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you've heard from your father. (laughs) Now, what Jesus is referring to here is that, obviously, he's referring to God the Father. When he says to the Jews who want to kill him, you do the deeds of your father, he's referring to the enemy himself, Satan himself. They answered, they said to him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me. A man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, listen to this, they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. This is Jewish leaders who hated Jesus 30 years later going back to the first Christmas. Saying, buddy, we know your mama and we know your daddy. And we know the circumstances that surrounded your birth, that before they were married, she turned up pregnant. We know all about it, and we've never forgotten. We weren't born of fornication like you were, you liar. We're right with God because we're the children of Abraham. Now hit the road. That's what they're saying. And Joseph knew. He knew, if I take Mary to be my wife, we will face this. For the rest of our lives. And this was the hinge. Joseph was a man like you guys. This was the hinge for Joseph. The crisis of faith. And here's what he had to decide. Can I trust God enough to obey him? Because here's an angel that's come. We go back to verse 20 and 21. Here's an angel that has come. He's representative of God himself. This angel has told me. As a message from God, do not be afraid to take her as your wife, knowing everything that comes before, that's going to come after this, that's going to come along with it, knowing everything that people are going to say. I have to decide, can I trust God enough to follow him here? And it's the, this is the same crisis of faith. You think you're not in the first century Christmas story? We are. Because for some of you, you face right now today a decision. You face a crisis of belief and what you have to settle before you decide whether to obey or disobey is whether or not you can trust God and take him in his word. You've got to get that one right first. Because if you don't believe that you can trust God, there is a strong likelihood that you're not going to follow God. And when I look at sin in my own life and where I choose to disobey, whenever I choose to go my own independent way, whenever I choose to do whatever I want to do, it's at that very point of disobedience that I did not trust God. For some, maybe you, you don't trust that God can meet your needs. And so you steal. He said, Brooks, I've never shoplifted in my life. I'm not talking about that. You may steal a client. You may steal an intellectual idea from somebody else and pass it off as your own to make yourself look good so that you can maybe get a promotion somewhere down the road. You may steal items. You may steal goods. You may steal money. You may rip people off. I don't know what it is. But when you trace that back, it's not just simply a sin of disobedience. It's a failure to trust God. I don't believe God can meet my needs the way he promises to, even though I'm a believer, so I'm going to steal. Uh, maybe for others, it's a, you know, I don't, I don't trust in the acceptance that God gives me through Christ. I don't trust that he's enough for me. I don't trust that he loves me unconditionally and that that's all I need. And so because I long for that kind of approval, long for that kind of acceptance, and long for that kind of love, I'm going to step out the boundaries, outside the boundaries of moral purity. I'm going I'm to uh, become involved uh, in ways that God doesn't want me to physically, whether as a single person or as a married person. Why? Because I don't trust that God can give me what I need in regards to acceptance and regards to love, and so I'm going to seek it in my own ways, in my, in, in my own, by my own agenda, because I don't trust him to do that for me. See, it's a trust issue. 
I don't know how it plays itself out perhaps for you, but, but maybe in other ways, you know, I don't, maybe, maybe you say, I don't trust it, that God's grace is enough for me. And so I look back and I see the sin of my life and, and uh, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Christ, but you know, I, I've got to punish myself. I've, I've got to carry guilt around because of what I've done in my life. I don't trust that his grace is sufficient to wipe the slate clean and, and to, to give me a brand new start in my life. And so you're miserable. Because you don't take God at his word and you don't trust that forgiveness is forgiveness and grace is grace and that it's all free and you don't deserve any of it. I've had people tell me before, I don't think I can accept Christ. I don't deserve salvation. And I say, none of us deserve it. It's not an issue of deserving it. It's it's an issue of him paying for it. (laughs) And yet for some of you, you're still dragging around guilt and you're dragging around stuff that you've long since been forgiven of as a believer. Why? Because you don't trust that God's grace is exactly what he says it is, that it's enough. And we'll sing about it with the choir because it sounds good and we feel great. But when you leave out of here, you're still dragging guilt around because you don't trust that his grace is enough. See, it's a trust issue. That's where Joseph was. That's where a lot of us find ourselves. We make our choices based on whether or not we trust God. If we don't trust him, we go our own way. If we do trust him, then we follow. Now, now God had given... God had already given Joseph everything he needed to know. Look at what it says, verse 22, verse 23. It says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This is reference to Isaiah 700 years before. Behold, the virgin shall be with a child, shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Joseph, Joseph was a righteous man. This has already been established in this passage. He more than likely would have known what Isaiah the prophet had said about the Messiah. And he's got everything he needs now. He's got all the information he needs. He's got a message from God. He knows what it's going to cost him, but he has to make a choice. Do I follow or do I not? I love verse 24. Look at what it says in the next verse. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Do you realize the cost of that decision? Do do you grasp the cost of that decision? That he awoke and he did and he took. Why? Because he trusted in what God would say. Look at what it says in verse 25. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. And the table was set at this point for the entrance into this world through the life of a little virgin girl named Mary and a trusting earthly father named Joseph for the Savior that you and I and everyone would so desperately need. Trust in God always precedes obedience to God. So let me ask you a question this Christmas season. In what area of your life right now do you face a decision? And it may be a big decision. It may regard your family. It may regard your career. It may regard your finances. It may be some other peripheral area of your life. But in what area of your life do you face a decision this Christmas season, today? It's on the table before you. 
And as you examine the evidence and you think things through, you already know in your heart of hearts what would most honor God in that decision. You know the decision that's going to honor him, and you know the decision that's going to dishonor him. And everyone's decision that you face is probably going to be unique. For some of you, it's going to be to begin a relationship. For others, it's going to be to end a relationship, not a marriage, but a relationship. For some, it's going to be to start something that you know God wants you to start. For others, it's going to be to give up something that you know God wants you to give up. It may involve a habit. It may involve a stronghold. It may be involving the crowd that you run with. It may involve any number of decisions. But as you face that decision, already knowing in your life what would most honor God, are you willing to trust him enough to follow? (laughs) And are you willing to trust that when the cost of your decision hits you in the face, as I'm sure it did Joseph, that he will still be faithful, faithful even there. Can you trust him? Because if you don't trust him, you're probably not going to follow him. Because trust in God always precedes obedience to God. You know, I was curious as I was rounding out this message. I was curious as to what the, the, the dictionary says about the definition of trust. And so I went to the old faithful Webster's Dictionary, right? Actual hardback on my desk, you know, I mean on my bookshelf. And uh, I was curious as to what it said. Look at this definition of the word trust. An assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone. You know, you take, for example, a chair, and you sit in that chair, you've never met the maker of that chair, you, you don't know anything about the character of the person who built that chair, what you're trusting in is their ability, that somewhere in this world there is a chair maker who made a chair that looks really good on the outside, and it must be good enough for me to trust enough to sit in. And so you sit there. And all it takes is one of those four components for you to be able to trust. You know, what occurred to me is that Even the dictionary points to us as to why we should trust in God. Because when you sift God through this earthly definition, he meets every criteria. Trust is an assured reliance on the character of God. Is there anything really that would cause us to doubt the character of God? I mean, not once in history has he ever committed one sin. The only sin that ever touched him was the sin that he took upon himself willingly through the person of Jesus on the cross that was really your sin and mine. I mean, the character of God is indisputable. No one can dispute the character of God. The pages of Scripture chronicle that for us. Trust is also an assured reliance on the ability of God. Let's just start with creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Anybody recently ever been able to top that one? Or maybe the Red Sea and how God parted the waters or all of the miraculous events throughout the Old Testament, the things that took place in the New Testament. I mean, raising from the dead, feeding the 5,000. I mean, the list goes on and on. Can we really question the ability of God? I mean, God has far more ability than anyone we've ever met, anyone we've ever heard of. I mean, he holds all ability on the face of this earth. I mean, he, it's, he himself is the one who grants ability to those that he's created. We have complete reliance and total trust in his ability. What about strength? The book of Psalms especially helps us to understand the strength of God and how, how his, his uh, outstretched arm and by his mighty hand he has worked wonders. His strength is insurmountable. And, and what about his truth? Jesus himself would describe his own life. He, he himself would, would say about himself, I am the way, what, the truth and the life. So when we look at trust, 
<laughs> Even an earthly secular dictionary helps us to understand that it's an assured reliance on the character, the ability, the strength, and the truth of someone. And there's only one who meets that criteria, and it's God himself, most clearly displayed through the person of Jesus Christ, most often celebrated at the season called Christmas. So when you face your big decision and you're deciding which way you're going to go, will I go with God or will I push him to the side? Will I obey him or will I disobey? Will I follow him or will I abandon him? When you're sorting through that decision this Christmas season and every other time in the rest of your days, just remember that what will dictate the direction you go will more than likely be whether or not you trust him. For Joseph, he shows us what that looks like, that against all odds, against the good advice seemingly of probably everyone who knew him, all it took was a message from a God that was trustworthy for him to do the unthinkable. And as a result, to have a front row all expense paid ticket to the greatest event in history. You know, for some of you, it's not about a decision that you face and whether you can trust him before you obey him. For some of you, it's, it's about a relationship with him. And the decision for you is not so much about a little decision. It's about your whole life. And it's about whether or not you're going to try to find forgiveness and hope for the best when you stand before God by finding forgiveness some other way or whether you can trust him, take him at his word, and believe that Jesus died for you, rose again, to give you complete and total forgiveness if you'll turn from sin and invite him to take over. And for some of you, that's the only decision, really, that you need to be thinking of this Christmas season, is whether or not you're ready to trust Christ, take him in his word, and invite him in to forgive and to take over, so that you can then begin to follow him step by step, choice by choice, with a life of obedience that's rooted in total, complete, and utter trust. Let's pray. Lord, I love the way your word uh, just jumps off the page 2,000 centuries later into our lives. Lord, it's easy to feel a disconnect when we're reading the stories of Matthew and Luke, true stories of how you made your entrance into this world. It's easy for us to feel a little disconnected. We don't have shepherds wandering around out in the other parts of our city. We, we, don't, we don't have stars moving around the heavens for us to follow. We, we, we don't get visits from angels. Um, Lord, it, sometimes we feel a little disconnected from those days, and we think, boy, well, how, how neat it would have been to have been there. But Lord, in a lot of ways, we are there. Because the same crisis of faith that Joseph faced when he had to decide, will he take you at your word against all odds, is often the same crisis of faith that many of us face. Some today, Lord, are thinking about giving up on a marriage, Lord, because they can't trust that somehow you can give them strength to continue, maybe even in very difficult circumstances. Others are holding on to unforgiveness and bitterness and anger, because they can't trust you enough that if they were just to let go of the bitterness and the unforgiveness, that they'll really still be okay. Lord, for many of us, this message jumps right into our lives because really the heart of our obedience 
or disobedience is this issue of trust. Can we take you at your word? That when you say you'll never leave us and that you're enough for us, that your way is best for us, can we really trust you? Lord, thank you that your word shows us from first book to last, Lord, that you are trustworthy. Lord, for those that face some of these decisions I've talked about, God, I pray that you give them courage, courage of a man named Joseph. Lord, to step out and just to follow where you lead, to do what you tell them to do. And God, thank you that as we'll see next week, that that kind of trust draws a reward. And so God, we pray that in these weeks to come, as we move up to Christmas, that you would draw us close to yourself. For those that don't know you, Lord, that they would even be willing to trust Christ as their Savior, as their Lord, to give forgiveness that no one else can. And Lord, may this truly be a Christmas worthy of celebration because we know you for who you are and we're grateful for what you've done in our lives. Bless now these decisions we need to make. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.